direct from Cape Gun Works in Hyannis. You're listening to Rapid Fire Radio with your host, Toby Leary. I'm Toby Leary from Cape Gunworks. I'm passionate about all things Second Amendment. While I love to shoot... Going hot. There is so much more to guns than just pulling the trigger. A free and armed society is a responsible and self-reliant one. Join us to talk all things guns, freedom, and self-defense. It isn't just about being armed... It's about being responsibly armed. So load and make ready. This is Rapid Fire. Welcome, everybody, to Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. I hope you're all having a wonderful week so far. And uh, this show is sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. So please go ahead and check them out and support them in any way you can. If you're not a member of the USCCA, make sure you uh, get signed up today. You don't want to be walking the streets without legal protection and financial protection and federal ammo is phenomenal as well a sponsor of the show and check their stuff out also so anyway um please like and subscribe wherever you consume your social media we're at cape gunworks and at rapid fire radio all one word wherever you consume social media from so we're we're there i promise um in fact, we are broadcasting to about eight different platforms as we speak, uh, some on the Rapid Fire Radio, some on Cape Gunworks uh, social media pages. So please give us a like, subscribe, share, comment, and spread the word far and wide to your friends, neighbors, enemies, relatives, and associates. And I will be forever in your debt for doing so. So thanks so much, guys. Um, Last week, we had a truncated show due to the technological gremlins that decided to show up. So hopefully, all is right with the universe. Today was the big uh, emergency alert system day. So I don't know if that's going to cause any whammies on my broadcast. So <laughs> you never know. But um, 
you know, I, I think everybody in America got a emergency alert system. So here's the uh, non-emergency alert system from Toby Leary and Cape Gunworks and Rapid Fire Radio uh, to like and subscribe to all of our content. So there you have that. I'm, I got an action-packed show planned for you today. Uh, two full hours of amazing content, if I do say so myself. And it's not because of anything I'm doing, but we have Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner joining us in the second hour. So it's going to be really exciting to get up to date with everything going on there by probably one of the best in the business at breaking down legal cases and legal action, if not the best. And he is a professor of law and he is licensed on the Supreme Court Bar Association. So super cool. Not to mention an author and um, just an all-around good guy, a 2A advocate. So we're excited to have him on the show in the second hour. Uh, the first hour, you got me, and I'll take your questions as well. If you want to give us a call, it's 508-444-2120. That's 508-444-2120. I'll type that in the chat. Um, we are taking calls today. so um, uh, And you can also just type your question in, into the chat. I'll try to read it wherever you're watching this show live. We're on right now YouTube, Facebook, Rumble, Twitch, Twitter, Truth. Oh, no, I, I lied. We're not on Truth. Truth stopped its streaming service or only make it available for people who are probably, um, you know, big. And I think they're trying to have some sort of merger with Rumble, which we are on Rumble, by the way. So anyway. Jay Austin says we're going to get a geeky in the we're going to get geeky in the second hour. Uh, that's right. Uh, if you watch Mark Smith's show, The Four Boxes Diner, you'll know exactly what that means. Um, but give us a call 508-444-2120. Something interesting that's been going on in my world is you'd think I'm running for office or something, which Technically, I am, but it has nothing to do with this. Uh, I have been speaking at more events lately than I ever have in my life, um, almost once or twice a week. So this past Monday, I was at the Falmouth Town Committee, uh, Republican Town Committee, um, and I was giving a uh, talk there. Oh, we got a call already, so let's let's go to the phones. What the heck? We never go to the phones in my opening monologue, but then again calls are priority. So here we go. Welcome to Rapid Fire. Go ahead. You're next. How are you? Oh, shoot. Hold on one sec, bud. Hold on one sec. Uh, let me get you on the right channel here. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Ah, there we go. We got you. Go ahead. So I saw a really interesting article, um, I think, under the Google thing that can, can, uh, Connecticut passed a new gun bill, and there's two interesting features on it. Um, but for the interest of time, and um, much appreciated for taking my call, I only want to, I'll tell you both of them, but I'm only going to comment on one. They are banning open carry in Connecticut, and they are also have this one strange law that you can't buy 
any more than three handguns within 30, a 30 day period. So, um, I found that interesting, but I just want to, well, what's your thoughts on the open carry ban? Um, all gun control is an infringement upon your right to keep and bear arms. So agreed. There's probably some gun control we could all agree on that we all kind of agree on, right? Like my friend said, we could probably all agree that we don't want machine gun vending machines in elementary schools, right? So yeah. if, if that's the case, then we probably agree that there's some level of gun, gun control that we are comfortable with. However, um, that being said, no one's all going to be happy with it. I, I think that it should be up to the individual, whether they open carry or concealed carry, even though I disagree with them open carrying personally as a good idea and a tactical, you know, a good tactic, if you will. So if, if you're just trying to make a political political statement, okay, yeah, I get it. I certainly respect your right to open carry, but I think that is at the end of the day, is it making it better for us or worse? And if you're just trying to like anger people who don't like guns, you know, you probably checked that box. If you think you're safer because you're open carrying versus concealed carrying, you're hundred percent wrong. Um, you definitely, Agreed. you know, have a ch better chance of getting disarmed or being shot first. So um, I, I would say tactically, it's a better idea to carry concealed. Um, and then again, thirdly is um, if you're in an area where it's widely accepted and kind of the norm, then yeah, cool, whatever. It's It, it makes sense. But um, again, I don't know if I'd do it for you know, the reason of that I just mentioned, I don't think it's a good idea personally. Um, but then again, there's certain communities that everybody does. So to each his own, I, I certainly respect the right to do it. Uh, but don't think it's done for all the right reasons, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I would conceal carry for all the reasons you said, and I'm kind of was wondering, like, what would this bill do for Connecticut like I don't see a lot of people open carrying around Connecticut maybe yeah. I'm wrong because I don't live in the state but it's like you know, the criminals obviously they're not gonna care and like it's like why even ask the bill like it doesn't affect me personally because well a I can still carry b I don't live in Connecticut but even if I did live in Connecticut I wouldn't open carry and I'm like it is the problem maybe they the police have had too many call-ins like oh there's somebody with a gun in the grocery store yeah, yeah it's a licensed person and you know people maybe it's just they're trying to curb maybe that's a problem but I really don't logically understand why you would pass that or maybe the other reason is they're very slowly trying to you know one sand grain at a time take away the gun bills you know they can't just you know maybe Connecticut their politicians are a little more craftier than ours instead of you know blasting people with something like hd 4420 or whatever it is you know they just one little thing at a time and then over like a 100 year span or something 
right. everything's gone and people don't realize it because, you know, like one sand grain at a time. But Yeah, they're yeah. exactly, that's exactly correct. Thanks so much for the call. But um, they are more interested in the long game than we are. <laughs> we like to preserve our rights right away and make sure that they don't get trampled on or underfoot. But we uh, also are fighting this long game that they are, you know, death by a thousand cuts. So um, I appreciate the call. Uh, and um, yeah, you're 100% right. They are, you know, don't want police calls anymore. They don't want people saying, oh, my God, a guy with a gun. Massachusetts is technically an open carry state. It's open or concealed. Um, but good luck trying to get away with open carry in this day and age. You're going to get a visit from a police. So anyway, um, one thing, I, the last thing I'll say on that is I just had lunch the other day and there was a couple of guys sitting next to me at the restaurant and we got talking and they're from South Carolina and North Carolina respectively. And they said, man, no one carries a gun out here. And I said, well, that's not true. And he goes, but I've, I've been here two or three weeks and I haven't seen, seen a single person carrying a gun. So he's from an area where everybody open carries. And so he just made the assumption that nobody was carrying a gun. So um, it's it's one of those things. But anyway, thanks for the call, bud. I appreciate you. And uh, certainly give us a call another time. Um, so that's the number 508-444-2120. If you want to be on the line, um, we'll, we'll get to your call. And we'll also go ahead and get to your questions in the chat coming up. I got a lot to talk about. Definitely some stuff coming up in Massachusetts and the whole Hunter Biden thing. So um, I, you don't want to miss that. Um, so we'll be right back after this. Uh, I am Toby Leary and you're listening to Rapid Fire. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Toby Leary. This is Rapid Fire, 508-444-2120. You can leave a message any time of the day or night. Send us a text or give us a call when we're live. Uh, also, like and subscribe and follow on all of our social media at Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio. All right. So uh, before we took the call, I was talking about uh, the public speaking. I've been doing a lot of, of that. I did the uh, Norfolk County Republicans. I did the... Uh, Hanson Town Republican Town Committee. I did the uh, um, Falmouth Republican Town Committee, and I did the Gun Owners Action League one at the State House. Um, which, by the way, I might have some audio forthwith coming uh, if I can pull it off one of the social media sites of the speech I gave there. But um, so I want to talk a little bit about what it is I've been talking about at all these speeches, because I think it's important. And uh, for us making a conversation in the public space about gun rights, because it's something that I don't, unless you're really geeky about this stuff like we are, it might not come up a lot. 
we we tend to get mired down in the nuance of assault weapons bans or high capacity magazine bans or you know the Bruin decision and the uh, right to keep and bear arms uh, versus um, some other you know right out there. But the the thing that we very rarely do, or I didn't do for a long time until recently, and I've certainly been talking about this a lot, is comparing it to every other right, enumerated right. So. I like to start off the speeches that I give with uh, the thing, you know, the thing, man, the the Declaration of Independence, which uh, our president so fondly likes to re repeat. But it's we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So. I talk about that because there's so much there as it pertains to the Second Amendment. And the first part is we hold these truths to be self-evident. That is so remarkable, the language in that. We hold these truths. This is something that is irrefutable. It is true. And it is obvious to all sentient beings out there. Unless you are lying to yourself or you've seared your conscience or you um, believe that we just, you know, are some pulpous mass of cells and that we weren't created. We just, you know, came to being through whatever. So if, if that's what you believe, then obviously the truth of what is about to be talked about is not self-evident. Uh, we do believe that all men are created equal, especially our founders thought that. And um, even if it wasn't in principle at the time of our founding, uh, ownership of people as property was prevalent at the time of the founding because of the country that uh, this nation was birthed from. But they knew that that time was limited and amazingly eradicated that quicker than any other modern country in the world. And, but I love the part that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable. What is unalienable? It is unalienable. Unalienable. So you can't attach conditions or make a claim on those rights. And among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So without life, there is no liberty and there's no pursuit of happiness. If you're not alive, you're, you know, you're pushing up daisies, right? If you can't protect life, if you have no right to protect life, then you don't have a right to life. That's what that all means. It's really amazing. And you can't, uh, if you can't defend that life, which is the most basic human right, most basic civil right, most basic right, it's inanimate, it's, it's, it's innate in nature too. It says also in the uh, declaration, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. We talked about this a little bit for those who, hung on yesterday after the Grace Curley show, uh, we, we got into the weeds about this a little bit. 
But that really strikes at the uh, root of that um, that most basic human right, the right to life and the right to defend life. Uh, because without that, uh, and that, you know, our founders identified that as a law of nature. Um, so to do anything other than that violates the laws of nature, which I think is is really remarkable. That's why it is self-evident. <laughs> That's the whole self-evident part. There's very few people on this earth, unless you're like Justin Trudeau in Canada that believes you don't have a right to defend yourself by firearms. There's very few people that would say, man, if this guy who's outweighs you, is younger than you, more athletic, stronger, swifter, and is trained to kill, wants to kill you, there's nothing you can do about it. All you got to do is just die. That's what a lot of people who make the argument that guns are bad, you shouldn't be able to own them. That's the argument they're making. And really, um, we understand that in nature, that's that's unnatural. The, the impala has horns and great speed. It can change directions quickly, and it has sharp, pointy things sticking out of its head. So if the cheetah get, catches up to it and finally gets it, it has another attempt at saving itself with its horns. The buffalo, the... Uh, you know, tooth, fang, and claw are the laws of nature, right? And so uh, the bottom line is they all have some sort of survival skill built into them. Well, man, other than its intellect and its raw power, which, which is very subjective to person to person, um, and the other problem is man who wants to impose their will on people uh, has a brain also to overcome whatever the person that they want to impose their will on uh, is able to figure stuff out, right? They're able to figure out how to overcome whatever defense you might put up. So the gun is the technological equalizer that can now make the, you know, 78-year-old lady on a level playing field or even have an advantage over the young, fit, athletic, uh, evil person who wants to beat her to death. And, you know, there's a million different scenarios that you could create, but is it the magic button that will solve all the world's problems? Of course not. There's different situations for every situation, right? But, it's like the saying goes, God created man and Samuel Colt made them equal. Uh, that's the whole point is it now evil cannot just impose its will on you whenever it wants. With the basic human right to self-defense, the gun is a t technological advance, advancement and at advantage that now you don't have to be a victim. You don't have to be... Uh, you know, taken advantage of. Now, there's so much that goes into that. That's not just, again, some magic button that you can press and it nukes everybody within a 50 mile radius, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, but the whole point I'm trying to make is the founders really took their time in, in drafting this type of uh, documents, our founding documents, that really 
go to the root of nature and mankind at its creation. And when I became a gun owner at 18, this is part of what I talk about, it became very obvious to me that the process of owning a gun in Massachusetts is not viewed as a right. It is viewed as a privilege. It has been taken out behind the proverbial woodshed and beat to death with legislation, beat to death with uh, oath-breaking, soulless politicians who feel that they know better than you about how you should be able to defend yourself and protect your family. It has been destroyed up until this Bruin decision, up until Heller and McDonald. Um, but let's look at it for a second. And I want you to put any other right into this process. So when I was 18, now I know this process changed a year ago as the first um, attempt to bring our laws into line with Bruin, but they failed miserably and they fell very short. But the bottom line is I had to go take a four-hour state-mandated class, pay an instructor $100 to do that. Four-hour class. Then I went down to the police department on my 18th birthday with my application filled out, another check for $100 in hand with three references and a reason for why I wanted to exercise my right to keep and bear arms. I went to the police station with passport photos and got fingerprinted and subjected myself to a background check that was going to be done by the state and the federal government and uh, the local police department. Then I was told I would get my license within 40 days, according to state law. That's what the state law says. They told me they'd call me when it came in and uh, or call me if there were any issues that arose in the in the process of issuing that license. So for the next six months, I made phone calls and showed up in person to the Dennis Police Department until finally I said, what is going on? It's been six months. State law says you have to respond within 40 days. And they pulled open a drawer and pulled out the, the license and handed it over. They didn't want to give it to me. And I was you know, very upset, but I was also relieved that I was getting my license. So this whole thing became a giant mother may I, me asking permission of the powers that be if I can exercise my right. It doesn't make sense, right? And this is the right that says, shall not be infringed. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I just want to say all that to say this. There's a phenomenon against gun owners right now called the Stockholm Syndrome. And this, if you're not familiar with the Stockholm Syndrome, it refers to the bond that can develop between hostages and their captors in a hostage-taking and kidnapping situation. In some cases, hostages may develop sympathies for their captors and their cause and even turn against the police when they show up to free them. Imagine that. You've been held hostage for 60 days against your will, been eating gruel or whatever the heck they'll feed you, crapping in a bucket. And when the police show up, you're sitting there trying to defend your captors. It's an amazing phenomenon that happens. And we have become accustomed to asking permission in, in this state and in, 
in banned states as gun owners. And uh, we have lost the spirit that has that gave us the greatest country in the world. Think about that. What formed this country was the British marching on Concord and Lexington to take the guns away, to take the powder, to take the shot, to take the flints, to take the caps. And what ended up happening was they said no, drew a line in the sand, and they shot back. I don't know who shot first, but they certainly shot back and sent them running with their tail between their legs. That was the start. That was the shot heard around the world. And I'm happy to say that in my official capacity and as an individual of Cape Gunworks, I will not comply with this newest bill, HD 4420. The rules have changed. I got some inside information on that, and we'll talk about that um, after the break. But um, something to think about, guys, is let's shake off the Stockholm Syndrome that has hamstrung us so badly in the last 20, 30, 40 years, where we start to identify with gun control and start to identify with our captors and start to say, mother may I, or, oh, I can't buy that because of this, or I can't do that because of this. More on that after the break. I'm Toby Leary. You're listening to Rapid Fire. Federal ammunition is 100. This is where the American ingenuity met a trailblazing spirit. Hard work united with patriotism and technology blended with new ideas. That's federal ammunition. Right here in Anoka, Minnesota, born in 1922, made in America, and proud to be the best. Federal ammunition, a century of innovation, and we're only getting started. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. I'm your host, Toby Leary, and we are really happy you are here. We uh, look forward to doing this show every week. Um, it goes quick, and uh, we're, at, <laughs> we're always trying to catch up for time that's lost. And a uh, lot to talk about. Maybe I'll have to do two shows a week. I don't know. Maybe someday when I uh, figure it all out. But anyway, thanks so much. Um, so like like before the break, I was talking about um, this talking tour. And I'm trying to wake people up to that process that I just described about the Second Amendment or trying to exercise your right to keep and bear arms in banned states. Now, put any other right into that mix. Um, last week, I read about the application for the right uh, the license to carry in Boston PD, and then asked you to substitute any other right for that. So you have an elected, unelected body. Oh, we got another call. Sorry, guys. Um, let's go to the phones here. Uh, we'll be standby. Welcome to Rapid Fire. This is Toby. Hey, Toby. The Don up in Stoughton. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Don. How are you? Good. No, um, you brought us some interesting points regarding the issuance of your license by the Dennis police. Back in the 70s, I had a guy I worked with. He could not get an application from the Dedham police. Mm. 
So I photocopied the law that stated that the police must provide the application. And I gave it to the man and I said, just go back to the police department and just slide this over the desk and see what happens. And he did that and the cop reached under the desk and gave him the application. Mm. The cops, the Dedham cops are trying to make it impossible right. for him to get the application. Yeah, there's, so, a, there's a lot of departments that were like that, Don, for a while. And a lot of them prior to Bruin wouldn't even let you apply for a license to carry that's unrestricted. I know Brookline was like that. I know um, for a while Concord was like that. Uh, the irony of Concord uh, being like that. But um, they wouldn't issue a license to carry for any lawful purpose, only for target and hunting. As ironic as that is, because you can't even hunt with a handgun in Massachusetts. But um, they would only issue license to carry for those purposes. They they said, we're not going to give it to you for any lawful purpose. And that's the, that's the uh, danger of putting centralized power into one unelected body is they can say what they want and, and get away with it. And they got away with it for probably 30 plus years, probably more like 40 years in this state. Um, and, you know, it's not until the Bruin decisions that, that, that had to change. So thankfully it did. Well, I've, I've always asked this question of you, when did the right to keep bare arms of the 1775 Patriots, uh, these to exist did they not set the standard toby they did they absolutely did yeah so if they didn't need a license to take up arms and revolt against the king why do we need a license then to possess a firearm and, and as i've told you before madison wrote in federalist 49 that based upon constitutional limitations what is not specifically allowed to government to act upon is absolutely prohibited mm. And you and I both well know that firearms are completely and specifically denied to government action, yet they do write laws, mm -hmm. which brings up one further quick point. In federal facilities, I've had, I spoke to Attorney Smith, and we had a little go around back and forth. But the federal government under Title 15 uh, lists where all federal facilities are to include the property that the federal facility or the building is upon. So anything under federal jurisdiction is quote a federal facility. Well, under Title 18, Section 930, you can carry a firearm or dangerous weapon onto or into federal facilities for all lawful purposes. Hmm. Well, wait a second, Toby. They didn't say you needed a state license or a local license or permission locally. I guess so long as you've passed a 4473 and you possess the firearm lawfully without any criminal intent, you can carry on federal facilities. But that begs the question then, Toby, why do states require licenses or some states require licenses when the federal government does not? Right. Well, you... this, this is so, which law is law? The one that secures the right or the law that infringes the right? It's the, these are all great rhetorical questions. The the question <laughs> is, who's going to be the test case, <laughs> right? No, you're 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 right. But um, it, it's it's just bizarre. I read. I mean, I'm not stupid. I mean, I'm re I read this stuff and I says, well, rights uh, rights, Toby, must be additive. Right. They can never be subtractive. Okay. So if that's the case, then how are the states subtracting from what the federal government? 
has authorized, and I, I thought under Article 6, the Supremacy Clause, if you're in compliance with federal gun control laws, quote unquote, the states have no say over it, right. but yet they do. They, they place further restrictive uh, standards and definitions when they have no authority to do so. Yeah, you, you got a great point there, Don. As always, you're you're right over the target, and uh, I appreciate the call, bud. It's um it's always a good good talking to you and getting that that um that other you know more succinct way of putting another it. Another view and just some questions for people to ponder. That's all. Yeah, yeah. No, I I love it. Keep it coming. All right, brother. We'll talk right, to you Billy, next thank week. You. Yep. Bye bye. Um. So he brings up some great points and I love Don's outlook on this and he's hundred percent right. And that's the beat that I've been drumming a lot lately is um, when did we lose our right? Because um, well, let's put it this way. They got away with it for so long because of the interest balancing uh, approach to laws, which the courts get away with forever. Uh, right on interest balancing. If, if it's in the interest of the public, then they can issue all kinds of laws. The problem is the Second Amendment is an enumerated right that says shall not be infringed. So you can't use the interest balancing approach to uh, to extinguish your constitutionally protected rights. There's actually Supreme Court precedent for that. Um, and so you know, there's a couple of cases. I think Murdoch v. Pennsylvania even talks about it, not to mention the um, the Brown versus Board of Education. And uh, there's one other one that specifically mentions um, a public official in their official capacity, uh, knowing and willfully depriving you of civil constitutionally protected rights. So there you have it. Um, but the bottom line is... Um, Tyrants are going to tyrant, right? They will take an inch if you give them an inch, or they'll take a mile if you give them an inch. So I'm at the point where we're, we got to stop giving, stop negotiating our rights away, and start um, really putting the hammer down and saying, not another inch. Just to finish that thought, um, what you know, I say is I'm, a, generally speaking, a very reasonable person. And I've had lots of people come to me and actually criticize my gun store because I have complied with magazine restriction and the assault weapons ban and the uh, approved weapons roster. And I say, look, do I understand that there's people that are violating that and getting away with it? Yes. I'm complying with it because I have a target on our back. We're the biggest gun store in Massachusetts, probably size wise anyway, not maybe volume wise, but you know, if, if they could bring anyone down and I'm the guy with the radio show, I'm sure they'd love to bring me down. The, the point I'm, I'm making is I comply so that I can remain in the game rather than going out the door and being right or getting arrested and being right. 4420 is a game changer because it'll put me out of business anyway. So I'd rather, if I got to go out of business, I'd rather go out of business for all the right reasons than me trying to comply and still getting shut down. So for that matter, I've drawn the line in the sand and said, not one more inch. And in fact, we're gonna gain our rights back in the next few years, I think. And uh, maybe we'll talk to uh, Mark Smith about that, a little bit about that. But um, yeah, that's what I see um, 
happening uh, over the next couple of years is us getting our rights restored to us um, unless they change the makeup of the Supreme Court or something like that. So I don't want to be the lone idiot dancing on the hill, guys. So hopefully you guys will support a, a, that that same sentiment and say, hey, it's been long enough that we have complied with all of your unconstitutional laws and lived in fear, frankly, about getting jammed up with nonviolent felonies because we forgot and had a bayonet lug on a semi-automatic rifle or we had a flash hider or we didn't know the difference between a flash hider and a muzzle brake or we didn't know the difference between a, um, you know, a AK-47 and a uh, some other version of it, like a um, M10X or a Galil Ace or whatever. So uh, I had a guy come in the shop the other day that he bought this AR and I, I fixed it for him because it was so messed up, but had a flash hider, had an adjustable stock, had a post band lower and this upper with a bunch of loose parts on it. And I said, you law enforcement by chance? He said, no. And I said, look, I don't really care what you do, but you know, you got like four felonies on this rifle, three anyway. And uh, he's like, what? You know, so that's a guy who didn't have a clue, bought it on a private sale and didn't realize he was walking around with three felonies on his gun. And all the while, um, those are the people that they love to jam up. But some scumbag who's a career criminal with a long rap sheet, he's going to plea bargain that out and in the commission, used it in the commission of a crime or something like that, or arrested. Um, and that'll plea out in no time. And he has zero interest in complying with your ridiculous laws that are unconstitutional anyway. So real quick, um, before the break here, Massachusetts town warrant to control private gun clubs subvert the second amendment. So John Petrolino has a great article on bearing arms. I, I don't want to read the whole thing to you, but basically on October 16th, there's a vote if you're in Westford, um, they're going to basically say that gun clubs are now firearms businesses and can be regulated. And they only want to issue four permits for the whole town. And two of them would be gun store permits specifically. Um, but they are trying to zone out the Second Amendment in Westford. Again, unconstitutionally zone it out. Right now, they have a right of the zone like all other retail as it should be. And they want to make it so that those people will cease to have their rights because they'll change the bylaws. So another way of doing it, the death by a thousand cuts method, uh, the town of Sudbury tried to do it earlier and uh, failed, although they were very sympathetic to the cause. I know Littleton has talked about doing it as well. Um, so interesting, interesting stuff. They're changing tactics now that they know Bruin has set the uh the scheme for or the 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 paint by number step by step approach for courts to have to follow on gun cases now um so they're looking at other ways that they can get around it and just drain gun people dry financially and uh through all kinds of regulation and legislation, all of which is unconstitutional, by the way, I might add. And uh, that's sad, um, but that's the way it goes. And uh, I will get to your questions after this. Um, 
don't go away. I want to, you know, I want to get to all your questions. Uh, it's been a while, so um, we'll do it. So stay tuned. We will be right back. I'm Toby Leary. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Welcome back to Rapid Fire. I'm Toby Leary. And this hour is going really, really fast. So... (laughs) I want to get right to your comments and questions. Uh, hopefully, um, we, you know, we might be able to take a few as well in the second hour. If you haven't heard, we're going to have Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner in the second hour. You don't want to miss that. I'm really excited about that. We'll get into the minutia and the nuance of that. Um, so, yeah. Um, Jay Austin says, uh, Speaking of so-called assault weapons and the bans, there's a rumbling that St. Benitez will drop another opinion ruling this Friday uh, for the fine people of California who love freedom. Yeah, he loves dropping rulings on Friday for some strange reason. Uh, and I'm really hoping he'll do that. He's got, I think, three open cases. The approved weapons roster, the magazine one that he ruled on a, a week or so ago, and then the assault weapons ban. So... Here's looking at California, especially the way that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals stepped right in and took it as a comeback case on the en banc uh, panel instead of letting it go to the three-judge panel that originally ruled on it, uh, which would be the typical way of doing that. Um, And they've really jumped through some hoops to make sure that there's no Freedom Week and there's there's not going to be a positive ruling in favor of the Second Amendment. Uh, at all they they can manipulate that by um, the 11 judge panel that they'll appoint for the on banc session um, so anyway uh, we might get into that on the second hour with uh with mark smith hopefully um boston rob says i hate mass and its gun laws makes me scared to even transport my ar anyway and that's exactly what they've done i just touched on that before the break how, how people good people are living in fear and I've had people come into my shop with like a Colt 1911 before they were added to the target shooting roster and say, I want to sell you this gun. And I say, why do you want to sell it? Because you can't own it in Massachusetts. I said, who told you that? Of course you can own this in Massachusetts. Nope. It's not on the approved weapons roster. You can't take, you can't own it. I want to get, get it out of my collection. I'm like, dude, this goes back to the Stockholm syndrome. It's like, number one, the state has zero right to tell you what gun you can and can't own via Heller. Look at that. Via our Constitution. Um, Shall not be infringed. Again, you know, this is crazy. But we're so used to asking permissions from our captain, captors. Like, hey, can I now go crap in this bucket over here? Or can I go pee in the corner? Or, you know, can I eat my hard piece of bread now? Because that's the equivalent of what we're in right now. Whenever we ask for, uh, you know, can I have a 
gun with a bayonet lug or a flash hider or a collapsible stock or a detachable magazine where those are the that's what that sounds like to me now at this point in my career and i again i've done it to stay in business and to be in the game and make incremental changes over time when the state loads up double odd buckshot and that proverbial double barrel shotgun and points it at the side of my head now i have an obligation and a duty to say i will not comply and that's exactly what they've done so um yeah shoot i could talk all day on that uh kp says and he's commenting on boston rob's comment that um locked in a case and unloaded you can travel legally anywhere that's that is true. You have a right of passage through all 50 states. You're, you're 100% right. Um, but it would be real nice if we didn't have to worry about that because the right is recognized per the instructions of the founders in the Second Amendment that it shall not be infringed. If you are a pro, if you are not a prohibited person, what? Who cares if it's loaded, unloaded, on my body, in a bag, in the trunk, in the car seat next to me? Doesn't matter. I am not a prohibited person. So why are you trying to create laws that could jam me up if I'm not jumping through the hoops in the right Simon Says methodology that you're telling me to do? Right? That's really what it comes down to is it's all about control. They want to tell you what gun you can have where you can have it, how many of them you can have, how you can carry it or transport it or where you can have it. it it's its maddening. It's totally insane. Um, Snake, thanks for saying hi in Quincy. I appreciate you. Um, and yeah, uh, pleasure to meet you too. Um, let's see. Uh, I lucked out moving where I did. Um, never any issues with my PD with licensing or otherwise. Yeah. Some PDs recognize that they're part of a process that is infringing upon your constitutional right to keep and bear arms. And they are like, they hold their nose and they do the paperwork because obviously that's the only way that you're going to be able to exercise your right, uh, unless you buy it on the black market and then you're just rolling the dice. You're begging and asking for trouble. Um, so they, they, uh, do whatever they can to make the process as streamlined as possible. Um, I've lived in towns that have been hard to get licenses in, and I've been in towns that I wouldn't say it's hard, but they've streamlined it a little bit and made it easier right now, town of Barnstable, it's about as easy as it comes, right? They don't make you meet the chief and tell them why they don't, or her why in this case now. They don't make you. Um, they don't make you take a live fire course, which some places are, and so they do what they have to do, and it still takes two to three months, unfortunately. KP, my hometown would only issue target and hunting for the first couple times I got it when I was twenty-one, and the second renewal, third permit, they switched to it all lawful purpose without me asking. That's what happened with me. My first one was licensed carry for target and hunting and then i got when i moved to barnstable they said actually i met with the chief deputy chief tamish who's retired and running for town council now um 
fellow candidate, um, not in my precinct, but anyway, um, I met with him and told him I want to have the right to keep and bear arms wherever I want to go for any lawful purpose. And he goes into my juvenile record, which I thought was sealed. I was told by the courts it would be sealed. Now, here's a little story out of school. You're going to hear about my criminal past. It's a, it's a, uh, yeah, there you go. You outed me. Um, I got in trouble when I was like 17, 16 or 17 for uh, malicious destruction of property over $250. So, um, you know, this is sealed under the court records. So I'm really just telling you guys some insider information about Toby Leary. And so what happened was my buddy had a car, he wanted a junk and we went down to the power lines and we drove over some little sapling pine trees and you know every once in a while we'd hit a tree that didn't go down and would slam into it and break the tail light or break the bumper or break the plastic off the car trees were fine maybe a little bark missing here and there uh, but they all stayed standing none permanently damaged and uh the police found us they they caught up to us and uh didn't arrest me, me, but they charged me with malicious destruction of property over $250, which is a felony or was a felony at the time. Now I think it's eight or 900 bucks. And so um, when I applied for my license to carry my renewal, my first renewal, so I got it at 18. So it expired in five years. So when I was 23, I said, I, I want it for any lawful purpose. And he goes, and he says, uh, I'm not inclined to give it to you because of this, you know, you didn't talk about this. And I said, well, that's because it's sealed under court record. And he goes, we know everything. And I said, oh, okay. And then uh, I go, but even still, you know, I, I wasn't convicted. And um, he goes, it was only seven years ago. I go, yeah, but the seven years difference between what I was then and what I am now, I'm married, I have a job, I, you know, uh, much different person from seven years, you know, and he says, all right, I'm going to give it to you, but don't screw it up, kid. And I said, okay, thank you, sir. You know, here I am thanking my captors. Anyway, long story short, um, some towns will pave the way for you, others will throw down roadblocks and spike strips. Um, so there you go. Uh, you comply who will be the case. Yeah. Uh, the test case always gets screwed, goes, loses all their rights and loses all their money in the process. No doubt about it. The mass rights side actions indicate further compliance will result in further dissatisfaction from them. And thus more restriction. They created a pattern. Is there much focus on that point of view? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to paint the light on, uh, shine the light of truth on G-Webs is, is the fact that uh, they're never satiated by the demand for your rights to be restricted. Um, they ask for 10 round magazine restrictions. They got it. They ask for a, uh, assault weapons ban. They got it. They ask for approved weapons rosters. They got it. And then they drop a 140-page document that 
bans semi-automatic rifles, that bans any gun except for smart gun technology, that um, would restrict where you can carry even more than it already is. It's totally insane the the level that these people will stoop to. And the bottom line is that, that it is a bloated tick that can never be satiated. It's a predator-prey uh, relationship. The 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 parasite gets in, digs in, grows, and becomes this bloviating uh, entity that can never be sa- satiated, and and that's what happens. Like I had someone call the Grace Curley show yesterday while I was on doing Two A Tuesday and say, "Have you ever thought about you know like making your gun more observable while it's on your body?" So to kind of throw them a bone or, or try, I forget the wording he used to try to uh, appease the people who don't want you to carry a gun. I'm like, what in the world? Where did this come from? Because no, like uh, trying to appease the people that want to disarm me is never a winning policy, nor should it ever be entertained as a, uh, as a policy worth, you know, pursuing, but that's, um, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So uh, anyway, uh, don't go away, guys. Uh, you're listening to Rapid Fire. Um, this is your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. And you don't want to miss the second hour. We have Professor Mark Smith, who will be joining us shortly. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the talk on that. He always really breaks down the laws and the cases better than anyone I've ever heard. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, so You don't want to miss it. I will be right back. I'm Toby Leary, and this is Rapid Fire. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Federal delivers a knockout punch with the leading defensive ammo on the market. Federal punch hollow points are accurate and reliable in all defensive situations. When you need reliability designed to provide a balanced mix of effective penetration and expansion, you need punch defensive ammunition from Federal, the leader in nickel-plated brass ammo with a sealed primer to deliver reliable feeding and ignition. Get Federal punch defensive hollow point ammunition here at Cape Gunworks. Welcome back to Rapid Fire. I'm your host, Toby Leary, and join us each and every week. Generally speaking, same bat time, same bat channel, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., or you can always watch and uh, stream it later wherever you find your social media. And uh, we're really happy to have with us in the second hour um, a guest that has been on the show before and um, has really set himself apart from the rest of the uh, people who do this type of commentary on the laws and on the challenges to legal cases. So we have Professor Mark Smith on the on the line with us. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's always fun. Yes, yes. Um, you've been busy lately. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
It's true. I mean, a lot of Second Amendment fights. Uh, we have the anti-gunners on the run. They're doubling down in their crazy anti-gun blue states, but we've got them on the run and they are scared, which is great news. It's excellent news. And it's a uh... It's wonderfully refreshing to see and hear. And honestly, it's happening faster than I predicted it would. I, I think like dominoes are starting to fall, it seems, in a lot of areas and a lot of places and a lot of courts are starting to get some things right that uh, we didn't see for a long time in this country, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the time period of 2008 through 2022, that is the time period between the date that the Supreme Court decided the Heller versus District of Columbia case in 2022, which is the date the Supreme Court decided NYSERPA versus Bruin. Perhaps we want a handful of cases involving the Second Amendment during that time period. But then if you look at what happened since June of 2022 and today, we've won literally dozens of Second Amendment cases all across the country. We've even won cases in really the, the crazy anti-gun states, such as like New Jersey and New York and things of this nature. So really, yeah, we should be optimistic as gun owners. And as I like to say, you know, every day we in America have the freedom to buy guns, to have guns, to buy ammunition. We're free. We're citizens. And they have haven't converted us into serfs or subjects just yet. Not for lack of trying, especially in a state like Massachusetts, where I was just talking about in the first hour, the process to exercise your right to keep and bear arms is more like a permission slip than it is a, a free right. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> a lot of asking going on, a lot of fees being paid, a lot of permission slips being granted, and uh, a lot of hoops to jump through. All And I think that's the case in California, New York, New Jersey, Maryland. There's a bunch of states like that. And I would personally, I think one of the bills that I haven't really seen challenged in any way yet, and even the Bruin mandate, if you will, or the case there didn't deal with is, is licensing issues as a constitutionality of it. And uh, I would love to see that because... What other liberty or what other right do you need to procure a license, pay a fee, take a class, get fingerprinted, photographed, background checked, and run through the ringer, so to speak, to exercise? I don't need that to go to church or to vote or to make sure they don't kick my door in at night, right? Yes, absolutely. And there are actually cases pending that are going to start to shrink down that licensing requirement. But before we get to that, I'll, I'll be happy to elaborate on that more. I do want to give you know all of your, your viewers and listeners in Massachusetts reason for hope. Uh, you just needed to look recently at the arrest at Logan Airport of New England Patriot player Jack Jones. Right. Mm -hmm. He was arrested with uh, I, with with a semi-automatic pistol and magazines that exceeded the limit on Ma under Massachusetts law. You know what happened to that? Nothing. Do you know why? Because Massachusetts, yes, they arrested him. Now, we understand that was Massachusetts arresting Jack Jones. That was not the federal government. That was not the TSA. That was not the feds doing it because everyone I, mean, I don't want to say everyone, but it's not unusual, of course, for Americans to, you know, forget that they have a gun or ammunition or something. That they shouldn't do it. But People do forget when they race off to the airport, they're under the gun, they're stressed out, they forgot they hadn't taken the gun out or something. So it happens thousands of times across the country. It's not a good thing, but it's the reality of, you know, everyone carrying guns in America. And sometimes you get you forget and you get caught up at the airport when you go through the uh, the, the radar detector or the uh, the metal detector. But the issue with Jack Jones is, you know, the feds didn't do anything with him, but the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts arrested him. They charged him initially with all these crimes. But as you know, basically they dropped the charges with sort of a technical, like, 
like, okay, we're going to have like a little plea deal. If you behave, it all goes away. And you know why Massachusetts did that? Because they knew that they prosecuted Jack Jones, who had a very competent private criminal attorney there in Boston. They really ran the risk of causing positive Second Amendment precedent to be developed in that court system. Just the same way that Massachusetts gave us the United States Supreme Court case of Caetano that said that any suggestion that the only arms that are protected are those that existed at the time of the founding in the 18th century, the Supreme Court literally said, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that that argument is borderline frivolous. The only way we got that Supreme Court decision was thanks to the state of Massachusetts prosecuting Jamie Caetano for having at the point, at that moment at least, an illegal gun. So again, stupid decisions by states like Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey are terrible at the time, but they often give rise to good precedents. And I think Jack Jones, for example, is a beneficiary of the fact that Massachusetts looked at the facts of that case and said, geez, we don't want to litigate this. We're going to establish some more Second Amendment precedent in favor of gun owners. We don't want to do that. So they let Jack Jones off. I'm sure that's a big part of why they cut a very favorable deal for the New England Patriot player there. And I'm glad they did it, by the way. Yeah, me too. And I think uh, there's actually three cases that are similar to that total. Uh, one we actually had as a guest on the show, he goes by Mr. Bear Arms. And uh, he's a New Hampshire resident that came over the line and owned land. And I think it was Westfield or somewhere in Massachusetts and was shooting with his 12 year old son on his own property. And somebody called the police and they came and basically checked. He had actually had a New Hampshire ID on him, like a license from New Hampshire, a firearms license at the time they issued him. And they still do if you want for travel purposes of states with reciprocity. But uh, they ended up charging him a month later with the legal possession of a firearm because he didn't have a Massachusetts license to carry. And uh, that is still an ongoing case. And then we just had one that I think... Uh, the district court judge in Lowell in Middlesex County Court um, dropped all the charges for a guy who was from New Hampshire, same scenario. And they cited that um, you don't lose your rights just because you cross state lines. Uh, it was a very favorable ruling. And uh, they they cited the Pheasant Lane Mall in, uh, in New Hampshire actually crosses the state line hmm. into Tewksbury. So he's like, you could you could literally be shopping in a mall and be perfectly legal in one store and go into another store and be violating a state law and, and that's unconstitutional so we'll see where that goes i hope it i hope it gets appealed by the you know uh attorney general but i highly doubt it will because it'll create like you said favorable uh law if it goes up high enough and <laughs> you know makes right. it so that yeah but well, um, the good news is, but you're absolutely right, Toby, right? If you think about it, if I fly to California tomorrow, you know, I have a right to practice uh, my religion. I have a right to have free speech. Uh, if I'm arrested, I have Fourth Amendment rights, Fifth Amendment rights, Eighth Amendment rights. So just because I'm in a state that I'm not a resident of, I have all my constitutional rights. And obviously, from extension, you also should have Second Amendment rights. And again, I think that those precedents are coming down, down the road. Uh, that's going to happen. It's where we're going to be. Uh, and of course, you know, Congress could fix some of this stuff, but that's a whole separate issue about talking about. But certainly, you know, there's a fundamental right to travel uh, that was established by United States Supreme Court precedent. And by the way, it's kind of interesting. The way the right to travel was established by the Supreme Court many years ago is it dealt with individuals that were, 
you know, moving from one state to another and would do things like apply for welfare benefits. And there were certain, you know, residency requirements. You had to be a resident for a certain period of time. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, if you move to another state, you're immediately eligible for the benefits of being a resident in that new state that you've just moved to. And of course, that right to travel speaks to this issue that, you know, it's one nation and all of our constitutional rights, including our Second Amendment rights, extend to the whole country, right? It doesn't end in lower Manhattan. It doesn't end in Boston. Your Second Amendment rights are nationwide as an American citizen. It doesn't just apply to you in your state. And again, the Supreme Court is aware of this, but you know how they like to act incrementally, step by step by step. It's a slow process. It's not something we all love, but that's just the way the law works. It's the common law system, case by case by case. uh, And we need some more cases up there to the Supreme Court, which, uh, you know, a lot of people are working on. Yeah. And speaking of Supreme Court, we have basically one case that's there and one that's headed there. It sounds like uh, probably more than one, but um, the Rahimi case is there. And then we have the the case of um, Duncan v. Bonta in the Southern District there with Roger Benitez, who that you've been doing a lot of video on the nuance yeah. of the whole uh, the whole Ninth Circuit. Why don't you tell everyone what that is? Because it's it is kind of unprecedented, and I understand. I don't understand the angle. I understand the not wanting to have Freedom Week and and not getting a, a positive ruling by the Third Circuit, but I don't understand how they could prevent it going to the Supreme Court if that's the angle that they are taking. Maybe you could expound on that a little bit or elaborate a little bit. Sure. Well, the Supreme Court you know, is the court of last resort, which means that cases almost always have to go through the system. They start at the lower courts, the trial courts in the federal system that start in the federal district courts. Then they go to the United States Courts of Appeal. And then after that, they go to the U.S. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has the option to take it or not. Uh, They don't have to take all cases. They can pick and choose. It's kind of the nature of being the Supreme Court under the law. So what's going on in Duncan versus Bonta, which is really a shocking event, it really speaks to how the anti-gun judges in America view themselves as political partisans in these cultural culture wars. And for example, what happened in Duncan versus Bonta was California passed a law that for all intents and purposes banned magazines that had more than 10 rounds. There was grandfathering associated with that. We don't need to get into that now. But in terms of acquiring additional magazines with more than 10 rounds, that was not allowed. There was a lawsuit that was brought several years ago challenging this under the Second Amendment. The federal district court judge in California, uh, Judge Roger Benitez, said that obviously this violates the Second Amendment because under the Heller precedent, it says that All arms that are in common use by Americans for lawful purposes are protected arms. Because magazines are indeed arms, because they're a necessary component to a modern-day pistol, uh, semi-automatic pistol, uh, magazines are obviously arms. Thus, they're protected by the Second Amendment. There's no historical precedent for banning these. They're in common use, and therefore, California's ban on magazines is unconstitutional. That was what Judge Roger Benitez decided. It then went up to the Ninth Circuit, on a to a three-judge panel that affirmed Judge Benitez and said, yeah, this is clearly unconstitutional. California cannot do that. And this is where the Ninth Circuit uh, anti-gun liberals stepped in to really put their finger on the scale of justice as I see it. At that point, 11 judges of the Ninth Circuit jumped in and says, we want to take this case on banc. And the 11 judges 
overruled and said, no, 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 there is no Second Amendment right to have a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds. And they thought they were all hunky-dory and having a good old time. That was until basically uh, the cert was sought to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court grabbed that case, granted cert to it, vacated the decision by that 11-judge on punk anti-gun panel, and sent it back down and says, get it right this time for crying out loud, you guys. That mm -hmm. case, Duncan versus Monta, went back down to Judge Benitez. He just issued a decision last week that said, yes, again, the magazine ban is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. But here's where it gets, to me, very sketchy. He issues that order and says, I'm going to enjoin California from enforcing this law against magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. They, but I'm going to hold off making my uh, judgment effective for 10 days. I'm going to give California the opportunity out of fairness to seek an emergency stay or an emergency appeal and a stay of my order to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, under the normal practice in the Ninth Circuit, when there's an emergency stay requested by a party, in this case, it was California trying to stop the effectiveness of Judge Benitez's favorable Second Amendment ruling. What happens? Well, usually that is either handled by an emergency panel of on-call judges that are on-call for a given month, or it's handled by the three-judge panel that had previously heard the case. One or the other is almost always what happens. Here's where it gets sketchy. If you look at, turns out, if, if you look at the record of who the on deck or the on-call judges were in California in the month of September, the month that Judge Benitez issued this ruling and the emergency stay was requested, two of the three judges had powerful pro-Second Amendment records. One was Judge Van Dyke, who basically was, you know, has written multiple decisions in favor of the Second Amendment. The other was Judge Leah Trump appointee, who had written multiple uh, decisions in favor of the Second Amendment. So obviously, if the California's request for an emergency stay to shut down Judge Benitez's ban or shut down, but you know, Benitez was going to shut down the ban in California. So it was pretty clear that if that case went to the emergency panel, California was going to lose and the semi-automatic magazine ban would be thrown out for all intents and purposes for many months, if not years, allowing Californians to go buy these magazines. The alternative was it could go back to the original three-judge panel that decided that the Second Amendment was violated by this magazine ban. But again, two of the three judges who were both still on the court, Judge Lee and also Judge Callahan, had both said that, yes, California's ban on magazines violated the Second Amendment a few years ago. So if it went back to the original panel, it obviously was going to be probably the same result, that the Second Amendment prevails and this magazine ban is unconstitutional. Either of those scenarios would give rise to Californians being able to buy magazines which hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition, probably for a year or more at a minimum. So what happened was that 11-judge anti-gun panel jumped into the fray really in an unprecedented way and took the case away from the emergency panel of pro-gun judges, if you will, and against the original panel of pro-Second Amendment judges, if you will, and they took it away from them. Says, no, no, we, 11 judges on bonk, are going to hear this routine administrative emergency stay from California, which is absurd. You never, ever see that in the federal system. And I've been talking about how this really just goes to show you that there are judges in America who, do, in my opinion, do not respect the rule of law. They do not respect the Second Amendment. They do not respect the Supreme Court. And they will do whatever they take to, to help the governments like the state of California violate the rights of law-abiding Americans, violate the rights of people that want to hold, keep and bear arms, and so on. So that is what I've been covering out in California, which is, a no, it sounds very, very geeky. It's a very inside baseball thing, but it really does speak to how 
some very influential judges in this country simply refuse to recognize that the Second Amendment is a fundamental right, even though it's literally written into the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, well said. And uh, so basically it was a stall tactic and also a tactic to make sure that there was no more Freedom Week or in, in this case, it could be Freedom Years. Uh, That's correct. And, yeah. And uh, what's what also is interesting about this is the fact that you know, when the Supreme Court GVR'd it to the Ninth Circuit to get right, they immediately vacated Benitez's decision and sent it back to him, which we all knew how he was going to rule. He wasn't going to yeah. all of a sudden have changed his mind, especially in light of the Bruin decision. So that I felt was obviously a stall tactic in the beginning there instead of them just dealing with it at that point. Um, so for someone in Massachusetts who lives under this same type of rule of 10 round limit on magazine capacity, the best I can hope for is that this will end up uh, being appealed to the Supreme Court and then them finally just uh, vacating the Ninth Circuit decision and making it the law of the land for the entire country. Correct. Is that something yeah. feasible? If you're in Massachusetts, you are in a terrible circuit. The First Circuit Court of Appeals is absolutely terrible. By my math, there is not a single combination of three judges in the First Circuit Court of Appeals that you could possibly get into any scenario that would give you a two-to-one ruling in favor of the Second Amendment. So you are in a terrible federal system when it comes to respecting the Second Amendment by my estimation, by, by my review. So let me tell you what you should be cheering for. There are a series of cases right now in uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago that deal with various forms of semi-automatic weapon bans, assault weapon ban cases, if you will. I believe the next Supreme Court case dealing with a arms ban will arise out of the Seventh Circuit. It's going to be one of those cases, either the ones that were recently argued in front of Judge Frank Easterbrook and two other judges uh, that were that were out of the challenge to Illinois' ban on semi-automatic rifles. It's going to be one of those cases or one of the cases that comes out of Cook County. Cook County is the county where Chicago is located. And those cases are the furthest along. And in my view, the most likely to get to the Supreme Court next. And it's possible that those cases could get to the Supreme Court. Um, I, I think it's probably too, it's probably unlikely that they would get there in the, the spring. It's not impossible they would get there this term, which ends in June of 2024. But I could think one of those cases could very well get to the Supreme Court uh, in the term that starts in the fall of 2024 and when in the summer 2025. So those are the cases you need to be looking for because those are the closest to going to the Supreme Court. Some people talk about a Fourth Circuit case out of Maryland and Virginia called Bianchi, uh, but that's unlikely to get there because I suspect we're going to have a favorable pro-Second Amendment ruling by the three-judge panel in the Bianchi case, which is a challenge to Maryland's assault weapon ban. But the thing is, when we get a favorable ruling, that will be very good news for all of us until the Fourth Circuit, which is another absolutely horrific court when it comes to the Second Amendment, until the Fourth Circuit on bonks that and spends a year to reverse it, so uh, which will be exactly what you said, a delay tactic to prevent any additional good Second Amendment cases from getting to the Supreme Court as it's currently constituted. The reality is a lot of these anti-gunners, and I include a lot of these judges, I hate to say, uh, in this category, there's a lot of people out there on the left that really simply are waiting for a change in the Supreme Court to allow Joe Biden to replace some of the quote-unquote conservative justices so they have a 
slam dunk win on all their issues before the Supreme Court. And thus, they're trying to delay Second Amendment cases as much as they can to prevent as many new Second Amendment favorable rulings as they can as they possibly can prevent, because that's what they're really trying to do. And there is a stall tactic in the federal system among the anti-gun lawyers, the anti-gun states. And, you know, I think uh, anti-gun judges that understand the dynamic here. And so if we can back up just a smidge and look at right after the NYSERPA v. Bruin case that came out, and then there was probably a half dozen cases that were GVR'd by the Supreme Court in light of that, if I'm not mistaken. And I think three of them were Benita's cases. There was the approved weapons roster, the yeah. magazine, and the and the assault weapons ban, if I'm not mistaken. Um, were there any uh, any of the cases you just mentioned were from other districts, part of those GVR cases that we should, uh, well, before I even get into that, sure. um, the way that typically should have worked, if I'm not mistaken, is they GVR them because they were, they got it wrong in light of that whole Bruin precedent that had been right. set, the text history and tradition. Um, so, so they should have dealt with it rather than kicking it back to the guy who got it right the first time, right? Well, you know, there's a long tradition of the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember, if you look at the U.S. Constitution and how it's written, Article 3 talks about the courts. And the Supreme Court is the one Supreme Court that is sort of the grand poobah of the whole court system. Then you have what are known as inferior courts. That's not my word. That's actually in the Constitution. These inferior courts involve these low, these federal courts of appeals and these federal district courts. And there's a long tradition of the Supreme Court laying out the guidelines, the rules of the road, the regulations, basically how courts should make decisions in various cases, not just Second Amendment cases, but all sorts of aspects of law. They basically say, this is how you get it done. And then they send those cases back for lower courts, the inferior courts, to work their way through and make the decisions and try to get it right. Because really what the Supreme Court is, if you think about it, in some ways it's like a CEO. They're like, look, we don't want to make all the sausages. We don't want to work on the assembly line. We don't want to keep the lights on. We're the CEO. We have big strategic decisions we have to make. And we want everyone else in the company to do you know, the work and execute on the product, make the product, sell the product, whatever. And that's what the lower courts are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making these decisions consistent with the Heller decision the Caetano decision, the Bruin decision. And when they get it wrong, then the Supreme Court takes it up and then will often spank them, I like to say. And that's exactly what Bruin is. And I want to remind everyone this. Bruin is not a new law. Bruin does not create new law. That is a misnomer. That is a myth that the anti-gunners are trying to create. What happened was Heller laid out the text first, and then historical analog law second approach to interpreting the Second Amendment in 2008 in the Heller case. That was the methodology for how you interpret the Second Amendment. What happened was between 2008 and 2022, the inferior lower courts screwed it up six ways to Sunday. So what Bruin was, was a reaffirmation of Heller and basically says, look, you guys, you screw this up for 10 years. We're not going to put up with it anymore. We're going to take, we took our Heller case, 
which they reaffirmed, and they basically explained Heller and the methodology in a sippy cup kind of way. Like, here, we're going to paint by numbers for you, lower courts, what to do and what not to do. We're going to spell it out for you because you couldn't get the Heller case right for a decade. So we're going to basically reaffirm Heller and explain it in greater detail in Bruin because you keep messing it up. So the way to understand Bruin is it's not a new law. It's not a new methodology. It's nothing of the sort. It is simply reaffirming the 2008 decision in Heller and laying it out in a paint by number fashion for those inferior courts who could not get it right. It's like basically making someone do their homework again and saying, okay, well, you got it wrong the first time. Let's redo the math problem. I'm going to show you how to do the math problem. And then you're going to go back and redo it. That's exactly what the Supreme Court did to the lower courts and Bruin. They reaffirmed Heller and told him, get it right this time. And we're going to help you out because you can't do it on your on your own. So now we're going to give you this lesson. And Bruin was really a lesson and a spanking of the lower courts, but it really just reaffirmed Heller. So that all being said, and that was, you know, really great for my listeners to hear because uh, somebody who understands that nuance and, you know, that I think last time I had you on, I expressed frustration why mm -hmm. the the court didn't just say we're going to grant cert to all these cases and now we're going to vacate the lower courts and now just make them overturned as of the law of the land like they did with the Bruin case. But um, the you said their job is twofold, one to make rulings and secondly to teach those inferior courts how to do it as you just expertly laid out but the the thing i say i am stuck with is all right where do we go from here like you got this ninth yeah. circuit that's poised to screw it up again and then does it go back to the supreme court does it you know do we have does it have to get appealed do they finally say okay we're gonna get it right uh, you know and what if they don't get it right is there any uh, levy that could be had against them by the Supreme Court? Well, look, the U.S. Supreme Court is very sensitive to these Second Amendment cases. And I'll give you an example. In the state of New York, after Bruin, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, came out with a little hissy fit with her legislator, you know, the legislative body there in New York. And they passed a bunch of clearly unconstitutional laws including involving sensitive places, which is a euphemism for government-mandated gun-free zones. Mm -hmm. Within a matter of a month or so, almost all of those laws that Kathy Hochul enacted were declared unconstitutional by federal district court judges in Buffalo, New York, and I believe in Syracuse. So, and, and then that went up to the Second Circuit on an emergency basis, and it went even to the Supreme Court. And what's interesting is the Supreme Court says, we're not going to handle these cases now, but they literally wrote a, a little, little paragraph by Judge Alito, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas that says, look, we're not going to handle the sensitive place issue right now on an emergency basis. We're going to let the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York City to issue a ruling, but then we're going to take a look at it after that. So it's highly unusual for the Supreme Court to issue a statement like that. And basically what that statement was from the Supreme Court, in that case, to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and to those litigating the Second Amendment cases in the state of New York, it was really a message saying, we got our eye on you. So don't screw it up, because if you do screw it up, we're going to take this case and we're going to fix it. So the Supreme Court is very sensitive to the fact that the Second Amendment has been treated as a second-class citizen for far too long, and they're not going to tolerate it anymore. Is it moving as fast as I would like? No, it's not. 
But the reality is the Supreme Court is an institution. They have traditions and policies and procedures and rules. And, you know, you got to make sure you have five justices to rule in your favor. You don't want to bring the case. So there's a bunch of sort of dynamics here. And they have, remember, the Supreme Court has lots of other work to do. It's not, they're not just the Second Amendment Court. There's the First Amendment Court. There's the Fourth Amendment Court. They got all these other issues involving, uh, you know, elections. So they have a lot of work on their plate. And of course, the Second Amendment is very important to us, but it's only one of the many important issues the Supreme Court deals with, as we saw like last term, where they basically said race discrimination in the form of affirmative action is a no-go from this moment forward. Mm. So with all uh, with the case as it stands in the courts in California now, we have a couple more, like I outlined, that are in Benitez's court again, yes. because the Ninth Circuit did the same thing, the assault weapons ban and the approved weapons roster. Um, do you think that the, what the Ninth Circuit has done is a you know, to be expected when he does finally make a ruling on those two as well? Well, here's the interesting thing. The only reason why the Ninth Circuit 11-judge en banc panel could do what they did in Duncan versus Bontem was because Duncan versus Bonta a couple years ago had already gone to that same 11-judge en banc panel. Because again, Duncan versus Bonta has been litigated for many years, all the way up to the Supreme Court and now back. So this, what's interesting is, you're right, Judge Benitez has several cases pending. He has a so-called assault weapon case dealing with semi-automatic rifles. That's a pending case. He has a roster case. Uh, I think he has an ammunition background case. But he's got like four or five Second Amendment cases. And as far as I'm aware, none of those cases have been to the Ninth Circuit before, which means that when Judge Benitez issues his rulings in those cases, and California, assuming that California loses those cases, and California takes an emergency appeal to the Ninth Circuit, we're, you know, the 11 judge anti-gun on bond panel is not going to be able to take it away so easily because they because they had not had the case before. The only reason why the Ninth Circuit could have the case is there's something called a comeback rule that says if a case comes back to the Court of Appeals a second time, then the original judges who are familiar with the case can take the case and decide it. But if it's a brand new case to the Ninth Circuit, they're not going to have that procedural option. So it's going to have to be decided either by an emergency panel or by the assigned on uh, assigned panel of three judges. But either way, no, I don't think it's going to be that 11-judge anti, anti-gun on uh, bond panel in the Ninth Circuit. It's going to be other judges which I would say overall is a good thing, because even if it's a random roll of the dice, we'll be better off than uh, going to a court that is undeniably hostile to Second Amendment rights. Mm, awesome. We're talking with Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner and having a fascinating conversation about the lay of the land. Uh, so you don't want to go anywhere. we got another half an hour coming up. And uh, Mark, I'm going to ask you real quick if you could just disconnect and reconnect because it was getting kind of broken up in that last little segment. And on the other side, we'll we'll be back with more from Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner. I'm Toby Leary. You're listening to Rapid Fire, and we will be right back. Wow. How's this for a Rapid Fire Gun of the Week? Right here, we have the Barrett 9950 BMG. And it is this week's rapid fire gun of the week. If you've never shot a 50 BMG, add it to the list. You've got to do it. And this comes with a couple hundred rounds of ammo, uh, 50 caliber ammo. It's from Barrett as well. It's in the Pelican case, the Leupold scope with the Barrett rings. It's a sweet little package. And you're going to save 500 bucks if you buy it while it's the gun of the week. Great special, it's got the cool little 
tank brake on there, which tames the muzzle. Um, but this is a really, really neat gun. And for some reason, the government is fixated on 50 caliber rifles now. So you might want to add one to your collection before they really get ridiculous about it. HD 4420 would ban this rifle, as ridiculous as that is. And government just released some thing on watching out for people who want to buy a 50 BMG. I don't get it. But anyway, it is this week's Rapid Fire Gun of the Week. I'm Toby Leary, and we'll see you on Rapid Fire. If you want to buy it, go to our website, scroll down to Gun of the Week, and use GOW at checkout. So thanks so much for tuning in. See you soon. All right, welcome back. I'm Toby Leary. This is Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. And uh, Mark, it looks like we lost your camera, but I'm, if you're still here with audio, I'm okay with that. We can continue on. But um, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. So Great. All right. Awesome. Well, I hear you great. And uh, we lost the camera, but that's all right. Um, we know what you look like. <laughs> But if you can get it working, awesome. And if you want to disconnect and reconnect again, more than welcome to do that. But otherwise, we can just go with it. So um, bef before the, oh, he's disconnected. OK, cool. Um, so make sure you uh, check out that link on rapidfireradio.us. Scroll down to Rapid Fire Gun of the Week and use code GOW at checkout. It's um, it's a. Uh, pretty cool rifle that we have in stock that uh 50 bmg it's the barrett m99 and uh it is super cool it came as that whole package with um with the the rings the scope and everything they they sent that out there so um anyway all right we'll go with this mark i don't know what's going okay. on with the i don't know what's going on with the camera but yeah, i'll keep right. talking well as long as we can hear you that's a good thing so um yeah, so before the break, we were getting really into the nitty-gritty on the California side of things and, and all that, but um, the Supreme Court has granted cert to uh, the Rahimi case, right? And um, you've gone on, you know, ad nauseum almost on, on that as well, but for those of my listeners who don't know what that case is, do you mind giving us the 30,000-foot view of it and what we can expect from there, like, uh, the the kind of the pitfalls that could come up to bite us in that, but also uh, what what the case is really about. Sure. Under federal law, you have a federal gun control law, 18 U.S.C. 922G. 922G lists a group of prohibited people. These are people that are not allowed to possess firearms. The most famous one of the one that's mostly used is 922G1, which deals with felons in possession of firearms. Um However, there is another provision called 922 G8. This deals with people that are subject of a domestic violence restraining order. And the thing is, a lot of these domestic violence restraining orders just simply say, look, you're getting a divorce. Uh, we're going to enter a restraining order. It says, don't go near your ex-wife. And she's not going to come near you. And that's it. So, but the downside to that, if it's entered under state law in a state court, under federal law, you are not allowed to possess a firearm. And that means, for example, if you live in Arizona, let's say, and the ex-girlfriend or the ex-wife lives in Boston, well, you know, you're not allowed to possess a firearm anywhere in the United States because you're subject to that restraining order. 
Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has taken this case because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals out of Texas, Louisiana, said that this is unconstitutional because there is no historical tradition going back to the time of the founding, which is the year of our Lord, 1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified and, and went into effect, um, of basically saying that people uh, who have been found, who, who civilly are told to behave, you lose your gun rights during the pendency of that restraining order. So the Fifth Circuit said this is clearly unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Uh, Merrick Garland wisely, wisely from an anti-gun point of view, sought certiorari from the Supreme Court. And the reason why he did it is Mr. Zaki Rahimi, who is the criminal defendant here, who was caught with these handguns uh, when he was subject to this restraining order in Texas, he, based on the court record at least, looks to be as a, to, to be kind of an odious character because he uh, has allegedly involved, been involved with multiple shootings. He allegedly took his girlfriend and hit her head on the dashboard of a car and then shot at witnesses. Uh, this is all the sorts of things that are alleged and claimed in this case. So from a perspective of the Second Amendment, he is not the poster child for who you want to be the plaintiff, if you will, in support of the Second Amendment. But Mayor Garland knows this. Shoot, we're losing him. So he's really trying to put the Supreme Court yeah. uh, free, in a sense, or to rule against Mr. Rahimi, who appears to be an odious character, someone you would think you might want to lose. But if you if the Supreme Court does that, they may screw up the Bruin methodology and abandon it in some way that waters it down so that when law-abiding Americans are having their rights abused by gun control, it will be harder to knock out the gun control law because the same Supreme Court will have watered down the Bruin methodology in some way to make sure that Mr. Rahimi does not go free. So that is why Merrick Garland rushed the Rahimi case to the Supreme Court and why this is such a mission-critical case, because uh, on its facts, you do not have a sympathetic man in the form of Mr. Rahimi. He's pretty unsympathetic. And uh, again, uh, you can see the headlines in the press about how the press would say the Supreme Court sides with the gun lobby over uh, over you know victims of domestic violence. You can see the headlines being written now in all the anti-American anti press and the legacy press. Yes. And that uh, is, that's going to be interesting. Um, but do you think I've said several times on this show that I think the Supreme Court is smarter than that, than saying, you know, letting the emotional aspect of this get involved with law for, for the rest of the country. Like it, at the very nature of this is due process, correct? Right. Isn't it? Yeah. I think there's several ways the Supreme Court can get around. The, first of all, um, if they want to avoid the Second Amendment question, they can do that. For example, there is a long-standing law of or Supreme Court precedents dealing with the Commerce Clause. Just to remind everyone, under the United States Constitution, the Congress is supposed to be a government. The government is supposed to be a government of enumerated powers, which means that the only thing the federal government is supposed to be able to do are those list of items in Article One of the U.S. Constitution. The broadest one historically is the Commerce Clause, anything that impacts on com you know, commerce between the states. So the good news is there are actually a series of Supreme Court precedents where uh, gun control and other types of criminal laws have been struck down as not touching fingers with interstate commerce, and thus the Congress did not have the authority to enact it. So one asks, what exactly is preventing a person who is subject to a domestic violence order in Lowell, Mass? What exactly is the touch, touching fingers with interstate commerce 
that the federal government can say, well, if you're subject to a domestic violence restraining order in Lowell, Mass., with an ex-girlfriend or ex-wife, now we can get to say you have no Second Amendment rights all across America. Doesn't appear to be a uh, touching of the fingers with the Commerce Clause. So I think the Supreme Court could potentially strike down this law dealing with domestic violence restraining orders under the Commerce Clause and not even talk about the Second Amendment. That's one thing. The other thing is you raise due process concerns, and that's legitimate. But what's interesting here, Mr. Rahimi consented to and admitted to these acts and consented to the entry of this restraining order, which arguably the Supreme Court could say, well, this doesn't even rise to the level of a due process problem, because if you admit or consent to um, giving up your guns and you consent and admit to doing these things, well, there's no due process problem because you've admitted to that. And again, under the Fourth Amendment, which deals with un, you know, unre unreasonable searches and seizures and warrantless searches and seizures, look, you have all those Fourth Amendment protections when you're pulled over by the Massachusetts State Trooper, right? But if you say to the trooper, hey, I don't have a problem. You can look at my trunk. You can look at my dashboard. You can look all throughout my car. I'm good with that. Well, you're waving your Fourth Amendment rights there on the side of the road. And again, uh, that doesn't give rise to a due press pro problem because you're essentially waving your rights. So I think there are ways for the Supreme Court to dodge the Second Amendment question if they want, or I think they could take it head on. Because here's the key thing, Toby, about this. It clearly is not about public policy. Do you know how many times um, there is a conviction in the United States in a given year under this 18 U.S.C. 922 G8? This is what we're litigating over. There's about 30. That's right. 30 convictions in the United States approximately every year for someone who violated 18 U.S.C. 922 G8. In contrast, 922 G1, which deals with felons in possession, there's something like there's there's literally like over, I think, 10,000, but there's thousands upon thousands of people convicted every year under that part of the statute. But why did Merrick Garland want to take a case involving 922 G8 instead of 922 G1? We know why, because he's trying to make it hard for the Supreme Court to uphold the Second Amendment right to keep it bare arms, and he wants to water down the Bruin and Heller standard, and he thinks that the Supreme Court may bend over backwards and do exactly that because they think that Mr. Rahimi is an odious character. That's what Merrick Garland is gambling on. Yeah. So speaking of Merrick Garland, um, the, the Justice Department has had, and by the way, thank you so much for that explanation of the Rahimi case, because Obviously, we're in a waiting game right now, um, but the there's also been some activity in various, I think, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down um, the whole arm brace rule, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, on the ATF's enforcement of that. And the frame and receiver rule has had some ups and downs along the way as well. So the, the Garland uh, Justice Department is having trouble enforcing yeah. the, the rules that it's arbitrarily creating at the behest of Joe Biden telling him this is what's going to happen right through through that whole um yeah if rule change which has really been something that they have been granted some sort of power authority throughout the years and it's been upheld but now it seems like under the uh maybe Bruin has added a little bit of interest interesting uh flavor to that but more importantly that whole west virginia v epa case really yeah. dealt with that head on and uh maybe you could talk a little bit about those two cases that i just mentioned and see where they are what we can expect and where they're where it's headed so to make it sort of easy to understand what joe biden is doing as part of his attack 
on the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is he is trying to deploy the method of governing that was perfected to some degree by Barack Obama. That is that I'm the president and I have a pen and I have a phone and therefore I can still govern. So what Joe Biden and Merrick Garland are doing is they are trying to redefine and change all these regulations that implicate the right to keep and bear arms and the right to make guns, the right to sell guns and all these things through executive actions by just coming up with regulations. So rather than going to Congress and passing laws, which he can't get through, he is just changing definitions and meanings and the scope of various regulations. We saw that, of course, with pistol braces, where he's trying to say that if you take a handgun and a brace and you put them together, you have a short barrel rifle. You have a short barrel rifle that is has to be registered on the, the National Firearms Act. And again, we also see this with his ghost gun rules. Now, ghost guns are a political propaganda term for do-it-yourself guns. So the way he did that was he's now trying, instead of regulating frames and receivers, which as you know, under federal law, a frame or receiver has to be serialized because that is considered a firearm in and of itself. So what Joe Biden tried to do is expand the definition of firearm by saying that parts of frames or receivers, parts of receivers, um, partially completed frames and receivers, these two are firearms that have to be you know, treated as firearms as such with a background check before you can acquire them. So we see this attack by Joe Biden using the ATF by trying to expand the ATF's authority to regulate and put people in prison through the regulatory process. Now, that's what they're trying to do. So what has the response been by the Second Amendment community? Well, it's been very successful and attack-oriented, I'm happy to say. But rather than talking about pistol braces and frames and receivers at the moment, I want to talk about a pending Supreme Court case that doesn't specifically deal with the ATF, but it really does. And that is this case that was is going to be argued very soon. It's going to be decided this term in the next several months called Loper Bright. Now, Loper Bright deals with whether or not what is known as the Chevron Doctrine, the Chevron Doctrine, whether or not the Chevron doctor, Doctrine remains good law. Now, you in the Second Amendment community, yes, uh, who, who presumably is not a big fan of the ATF, you want in your heart of hearts for the Chevron Doctrine to go by the wayside. You want the Supreme Court to take the Chevron Doctrine and throw it into the trash heap of history. And why is that? Because the Chevron Doctrine is a doctrine that was created about 25 years ago by the U.S. Supreme Court that gives tremendous deference, deference to the administrative agency, including deference to the ATF, allowing when the ATF promulgates regulations under the Chevron Doctrine, the presumption is that those regulations are fine and they're to be upheld, absent extreme circumstances. That the Supreme Court is here in this loper Bright case, and the specific question presented is, should we overrule and get rid of forever the Chevron Doctrine? And I think the Supreme Court almost certainly is going to throw it into the trash heap of history. When they do that this term, that is going to be hugely beneficial to the Second Amendment community, because that means that any deference that people have to give in the past to the ATF is no longer going to be deferred to, and that will be a big win. And by the way, on October 27th, I think it's October 27th, is a very big day for us. Um, and that is the date on which the Supreme Court is going to hear 
in conference whether or not they're going to take up one of the bump stock cases. And the bump stock case, uh, while not specific to pistol braces or frames or receivers, the bump stock case is another example of ATF overreach. So what you want to cheer for right now in the Second Amendment community when it comes to ATF overreach and ATF regulations, you want to cheer for the Chevron doctrine to be destroyed in the Loper-Bright case, and you want to cheer for the Supreme Court at the late October to take one of the three pending bump stock cases and and then conclude that the ATF extended its authority unconstitutionally and illegally. If you get those two wins between now and June of 2024, that will be a major, major win for the Second Amendment community. And basically will also, as I see it, spell the death of the pistol brace rule and the frames and receiver rules that Joe Biden is trying to do through regulation in the same way uh, that they did the bump stock issue. Mm. Boy, that's something worth looking into. I is the Loper Bright case that one that dealt with the fishing uh, regulations? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And yes. I think it's that was crazy. a Massachusetts case, right? Wasn't it? That's right. Hey, look, yeah. exactly right. You know, the fishermen in Massachusetts uh, yeah. uh, should be sensitive to this. And it's a crazy case where the Department of Commerce said that we need to send monitors under uh, on boats to monitor the catch to make sure you're in compliance with various rules associated with catching fish. But here's the kicker: the owners of those boats have to pay the government. For for the time of the monitors to come on your boat to show compliance and the owners of these boats says, why are we paying for government employees and government people to come on and monitor our catch? That's absurd. You pay for it. You're the government. You want to comply for it. You pay for that. And they said, no, you pay for it. And they went to the Supreme Court. And now the question is whether that regulation by commerce is going to get struck down. And I'm pretty sure that uh, the fishermen are going to be extremely happy when Loper Bright is decided. And the ATF, among others, is going to be extremely unhappy because that share Chevron doctrine is going to go away. And thank God, because that's going to take away tremendous power from those alphabet agencies that lord over us. It's not just the ATF, that's the EPA, that's the FDA, that's the CIA, that's the FBI, that's all those three-letter alphabet agencies out there. They will all lose power if the Chevron doctrine is thrown in the trash heap of history. Yes. I wonder if it'll even have the trickle-down effect into like some state regulatory yeah. agencies, because uh, one of the things that our attorney general did in 2016 when she declared by uh, edict that assault weapons, they ex she expanded the definition of assault weapon in a way that no other uh, attorney general did during the 10-year period of the assault weapons ban as when it was part of the law of the land for the entire country. She uh, redefined what assault weapon was, even though we adopted word for word the federal law of the assault weapons ban into state law and um but what she did also was if anyone violated it like a gun store violated that you would be immediately fined ten thousand dollars to fund your prosecution so we were paying the seed money to fund our own prosecution and i i always was like oh that's interesting like what other se segment of society can you uh, find someone or levy, levy their bank account in order to prosecute them with that money. Like that doesn't sound constitutional in and of itself. Like it, where's the presumption of innocence if, if uh, you know, if, if you're finding them right off the rip, but anyway, uh, so maybe that'll have the ripple effect down to the state level. I don't know, but so many laws, so little time and money to, <laughs> to challenge right. them all. Um, we got a question, if you don't mind, from uh, G. Webbs. Uh, he says, in a perfect world, ideal circumstances, how would the 2A community prepare and act to defend the 2A best going into 2024? Well, elections matter. 
right? Because, you know, you say what you want about Donald Trump. There's arguments going back and forth about Donald Trump. We need we don't need to get into that here. The one thing you got to say about President Trump is that he gave us the three best arguments for President Trump were Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, all of whom yes. were, you know, helped write that powerful, nice Sherpa Bruin decision. Um, mm -hmm. So if you support the Second Amendment, the most important thing is to try to win the White House because they're responsible for picking judges. If you have a Democrat in the White House and you have Joe Biden in the White House or some other Democrat in the White House for four more years between you know 2024 and 2028, you know, you know, Supreme Court judges don't live forever. I mean, remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, passed away on the eve of the 2020 election and uh, was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. So again, a big part of why the anti-gunners are trying to delay certain things and keep things in the lower court as long as possible is because they really are hoping that the Supreme Court turns over. And the easiest way for the Supreme Court to turn over is for justices that are respectful of the Constitution to be replaced by justices that don't respect the Constitution. And um, yeah, winning winning the White House is number one. I would say keeping the UN, you know, winning the United States Senate is number two because the U.S. Senate has to sign off on judges. And as we can see, uh, judges are mission critical on these issues. So at the federal level, that's the key. But again, you know, you want to fight away at the state level in all respects. One thing that's often lost in the Second Amendment community, and one of the reasons why I started the Four Boxes Diner Second Amendment channel, was to really educate people at all levels. Uh, yes, I think almost all the scholars and lawyers in America that do Second Amendment stuff probably watch every Four Boxes Diner episode. I'm guessing that's likely true, but I can also tell you that a lot of people write to me and say, look, you know, I sit there and I watch your channel with my high school kid or my child, and they learn about the Constitution, they learn about the law. Because what I teach on the Four Boxes Diner channel, Toby, is not the sort of thing that you learn in most public schools, because in public schools, they don't like to teach about guns and the revolution. For example, if you know you go through Logan Airport, they talk about Massachusetts as the home for revolutionary ideas. Well, it's not really the home of revolutionary ideas. It's the home of a revolution against tyrannical government that was that we fought a revolution over gun control, right? Because remember, the British, when they left Boston to go uh, out to Lexington and Concord, they weren't going there to rape and pillage the countryside, right? No, they were trying to get the guns that the colonists had put together. And that's where the Revolutionary War began. It was a fight over gun control. And that kind of history is not taught in America's schools. So I would say to all of the people that are listening here, it's very important that you try to talk to your friends, your kids, your grandkids, and try to expose them to these ideas. Because I think in almost all schools in America, unfortunately, this sort of thing, like you learn on the Four Boxes Diner channel, on your channel, and on your show, uh, a lot of people, especially younger generations, are not learning this automatically because their teachers are not teaching it. Yeah, you bring up a great point. And uh, we were just at the Massachusetts State House last week for um, a rally at the state house because of this bill, this looming bill, HD 4420. And uh, we did a big rally on the Boston Common. And then we all went inside and, you know, started to meet with our state senators and state representatives. And my wife actually pointed out um, that all of the artwork in the hallways and on the ceiling and on the walls, all the murals, all the portraits, everyone's carrying a gun in right. the Massachusetts State House. <laughs> and you know, if you just take a field trip to the State House, you're going to be like, "Wow, guns were pretty important back then." Uh and it's on every picture. As I'm sitting there talking with uh, you know, chief of staff in the Senate President's office about gun control and um you know, we're surrounded by pictures of people with guns and also 
the the one thing he really was harping on was this ghost gun you know the ghost gun unserialized <laughs> weapon thing and on the way out we kind of had to disagree to disagree and i i was gonna miss the bus anyway so i said on the way out the door um sir i want you to think about something but this nation was founded by people with ghost guns because there was no serial number requirement there was no you know barrel length or you know right. gun reporting or registration king george didn't know who had what when he sent the redcoats to take their guns and uh you know ghost guns aren't a problem for people who you don't have to worry about it's only because you keep releasing criminals onto the streets that we're even having this conversation but you're the guy proffering a constant solution in search of a problem so yeah, I want to say something about ghost guns that's very important because this is not – I've tried to talk about this on my channel several times because it's so mission-critically important. What happened is there is uh, – remember, there is coordination between the, the anti-gun government officials and, and you know all sorts of anti-gun academics and all sorts of people in, in that movement on the other side of us. And one of the things that happened was what exactly is a ghost gun? Now, we know what a ghost gun is. It's a propaganda term for an unserialized weapon. But here's the thing. There's two ways to have an unserialized weapon. One, of course, is to make a weapon that doesn't have a serial number. That's one way. But there's another way and a more popular way among the criminal class, and that is to get a firearm that has a serial number and then cross it off, sketch it out, rip it out, right? Take it off, right? You watch what you do with a file. So what happens is that to expand and increase the number of ghost guns found at crime scenes or ghost guns found in drug homes, right? You see this kind of thing? What they're really talking about most of the time are guns that were in the in commerce that had a serial number but they were all etched off by the criminals but those are ghost guns because they're technically speaking now unserialized but they're blending those two things together between what has been you know crossed off by criminals with homemade guns they're trying to blend them together to create this impression that ghost guns is a bigger problem that really is but we know what's going on here is that the anti-gun government officials in this country they want to know where every gun is they want to know where every gun on is they want this information and they're not entitled to it and the reality is as long as americans are smart and sharp about this they will never actually know this and that is mission critical because the founding fathers did not randomly put things in the bill of rights the fact that they put the right to keep in arms in the second amendment right there in the bill of rights is tells us all we need to know it is a check against tyranny that is not mark smith saying it that's not the nra saying it that is literally the founding history here if you go back and you look at the writings of for example uh, you know early supreme court justice joseph story who's very famous you probably know him if you ever watched the steven spielberg movie called amistad involving the slaves that rebelled against their i think they were spanish captors and took over the boat and they landed i think in actually in massachusetts if i if i'm Rhode Island, somewhere in New England. And the point is that it was it was Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story that wrote that opinion that freed the slaves that they had. They had the individual right to fight back against their uh, enslavers. And he wrote that pro-freedom decision, which was memorialized in the Steven Spielberg movie Amistad. Joseph Story specifically said at the time of the founding and shortly thereafter that the whole idea is the armed citizenry armed Americans is the palladium of freedom. It is the palladium of our republic. It is the essence of our republic to make sure that we never lose our freedoms as Americans and get converted from citizens into serf. This is right on the front of the mind of all of our founding fathers. We understand this. Again, the revolution was fought over gun control and thus freedom. And, uh, you know, again, we must never forget this uh, because the fight against tyranny happens every day all across the world. Some places 
places are more successful in stopping it than others. But freedom is always at risk um, by those that want to enslave and tell us how to live our lives here in the country and all across the world. Man, you said it great uh, as usual. And uh, the Four Boxes Diner has a uh, really cool particular meaning to it. And it took me a while to figure it out, even though I've heard of the Four Boxes, uh, you know, analogy before. But uh, why don't you just tell my listeners real quick, if you don't mind, what, what does the Four Boxes Diner actually mean? Sure. Well, the Four Boxes Diner is named after the Four Boxes of American Liberty. That's the soap box, which speaks to the First Amendment, the jury box, which speaks to the rule of law, It's the cartridge box, of course, to gun, and of course, the ballot box, which speaks to voting. Those are the Four Boxes of American Liberty. And those four boxes um, really started out as three boxes, as articulated by the freed slave, the emancipated slave, Frederick Douglass, in the late 19th century, who said that the slaves could, who the, the freed, the recently then, recently freed slaves, could not be citizens until they had the boxes of American liberty. So I decided to name the Four Boxes Diner after that because I speak to the Four Boxes of American liberty and I reference a diner simply because I'd like it to be more casual conversation as opposed to a lecture to the people. And that's why I came up with the name the Four Boxes Diner. Yeah, very cool. It's it's It makes a lot of sense. And you're probably one of the only people that puts that much thought into the name of your show. Like Rapid Fire came out of like, a two second conversation over dinner with a buddy like i don't know what to name my show he goes it's obvious and i said what he goes rapid fire and i'm like i love That's it a good you name. Know? <laughs> so yeah and uh fortunately it is kind of rapid fire it's a quick show even though it's two hours long it just goes so fast you know it's like a and we're constantly addressing whatever the heck is going on in gun world but um mark i really appreciate your time i know uh you're a busy man and you got a lot going on and uh, you know, this has been a great conversation. I'm sure that uh, my I know I see in the chat, the chat's on fire. Everyone's loving this. And we're going to share it back out there for replays all across the Internet. And uh, but how can people find you and follow your content if they would like to do so or even buy a, one of your books? Because I know you're an author as well. So uh, by all means, tell people how to find you. Well, the most popular way is to, you know, the Four Boxes Diner YouTube channel. We have 126,000 subscribers. I think now we've been viewed about 21 million times. So we're really trying to grow. And, you know, I like to say that my content is extra geeky, but I'm happy with that because I try to provide people with the inside information, the historical information, the information that you can't get anywhere else. And I'd like that to give that to the Second Amendment community so that people all around the country can take my information and they can force multiply with it in their communities, in their debates, wherever it is that they're using it. And, uh, so yeah, the Four Boxes Diner YouTube channel is the most popular way. You can also follow me on Twitter or X. I finally, a year, a little bit more than a year ago, I finally joined Twitter. I resisted forever, but I finally joined it last summer. Um, I've been going about 14 months or so on it. So you can check me out at, uh, at Four Boxes Diner on Twitter or X. Um, you know, we keep growing that number as well. I think we have 10,000 followers as of this morning or something like that. So it's reasonably popular. And I try to get gun information and Second Amendment information out there too. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be doing because we have a lot of cases out there and there's a lot of news and a lot of educating that we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what you're doing a great job of is educating, keeping us all in the loop. And uh, do you still, do you get involved in any type of litigation or uh, for, as a consultant or even as a litigant yourself? Uh, in, in this well, day and age or 
Well, the way to think about it is, uh, you, you, you know, you, you have to have scholarship, especially historical legal scholarship. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to focus on doing a lot of the scholarship and intellectual work. Um, and then I put it out there either on my channel or in law review articles. For example, I just published a couple articles in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Uh, they're in Massachusetts. You're probably familiar with that school and probably familiar with that journal. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, those are the sorts of things I do, because that's the kind of thing that lawyers can then, for example, cite to. In fact, I think last somebody told me uh, earlier today uh, that in the Rahimi case, there's a bunch of legal briefs that have been filed and some, you know, many people were quoting and citing to Mark Smith, uh, the, you know, in these legal briefs to the United States Supreme Court. So I'm really right now focused on scholarship and academic work associated with the right to keep and bear arms uh, because that's really inside baseball and very intellectual and hard to do. So I'm trying to get a lot of that work done um, to make available for the Second Amendment community for people that have real lives, that have real jobs, that have to deal with clients and all sorts of other things. So uh, I try to help uh, out in that way. Well, you're doing the Lord's work, sir, and I appreciate you for doing it and uh, making my job easier because I can uh, watch and, and understand and start to, you know, the dawn starts to rise on Marblehead here and and, I, uh, and I'm able to um, digest it and understand it. That's the beauty of it is you, you speak in a way that the lay person such as myself can understand and then and duplicate. And, you know, that's exactly how this, uh, I, I love what you said about how this movement can really be had is the force multiplier, like just a few, a few people who see this and share it can really, you know, uh, cause this to have, um, you know, extreme reach uh, throughout our country. And, and that's what it takes is normalizing gun ownership throughout our country is really going to win the hearts and minds of, of some good people everywhere. So and Toby, it's working. I mean, if you think yeah. about it, it's working. If you look at the conservative movement, what what aspect of the conservative movement has been the most successful and a part of the movement that's actually been on the offense, that's been gaining ground, that's been winning? I think the single area in conservative political life that's been succeeding dramatically so is the right to keep and bear arms. We are, we are actually advancing the ball. We have 27 concealed carry, you know, permitless carry states already. That number is probably going to grow with Louisiana next year, right? The number keeps growing. We have the best Supreme Court that we've had in our lifetimes involving the Second Amendment. We're on the attack in these anti-gun jurisdictions every day in these courts. Uh, we have them on the run. And again, you cannot say that for a lot of other aspects of the conservative agenda, but when it comes to the right to keep in bare arms we're on the march yeah and i just said the same thing to uh, a group i spoke to on monday night where i actually think that the second amendment is some sort of trojan horse to typical conservatives uh, conservatism if you will because a lot of people who go through life without thinking too much politically about anything they might not even vote but i saw a huge influx of people during covid who never ever like thought about exercising the right to keep and bear arms and then came in and all of a sudden i don't like guns how do i get a gun you know they right. they understood the basic human nature of self defense and uh then once their eyes are open to that now you know they might be open to further discussion on other issues in in our society that are really important so um yeah but uh, keep up the good work. I, I love listening to you. And I'm so thankful that you took the time out of your schedule to be be a part of the show. And uh, I look forward to uh, talking with you again. And uh, and hopefully we can do it another time. Uh, maybe we'll have some good news to report next time. And uh, you never know. But uh, by all means, um, you're welcome on the show anytime, Mark. 
Great. Thank you, Toby. I appreciate it. Always fun to be on. I look forward to the next time. All right. Great. Thanks so much. All right, guys, there you have it. It's uh, another round of uh, rapid fire is in the bag and uh, God bless to you guys. I'll see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. And uh, you know, what a great discussion that was today. And so one thing I hope that we all take away is become an advocate for the second amendment in your community, where you are, do your part. It's not that hard. Let your voice be heard. Send out some social media, send people to other people's social media, and uh, we can make a positive influence by being responsible gun owners in our community. So with that, I'm out. God bless. And uh, see you next time. This is Rapid Fire.